The big city is full of bright lights, but since daylight saving ends tomorrow morning, it's time to turn back the clocks and extend darkness a little longer. Good morning. I'm George Polarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Many of us don't even think about changing our clocks anymore since our smartphones and computers change automatically. But there's a place in Manhattan where the good old-fashioned wind-up clock is revered and repaired. The Sutton Clock Shop has been serving New Yorkers for more than half a century. My name is Sebastian Laws, and I'm the owner of the Sutton Clock Shop. Now, how long have you owned this clock shop? Well, it started off as my father's shop. And he opened up the shop really in 1967 with his partner, Kay. And they came from uh, what used to be a pawn shop. And they moved from there, decided to sort of focus on clocks. And they moved to 61st and Lexington Avenue. And that was in 67. Now, was it always assumed that you would take over for your dad? Not really, but I always had sort of the, I like taking things apart. And just putting them back together was a little harder. But I sort of had that sort of intrigue of, like, well, how does this thing work? And so it was kind of a natural fit where I started working with my dad, and then I just, you know, fell in love with clocks. Now, when I walked in here, I felt like I stepped back in time because I do not see any digital clocks around here. These are all old-fashioned clocks. Right. Well, what we do here is we mainly work on mechanisms with those uh, digital clocks. They're sort of chipboards or computerized, so we don't really do any of that. But if it's a mechanical movement, then we can fix it. There's a clock chiming behind us right now. I would imagine the sounds really run the gamut. Oh, right. And it's like, you know, it's you just get so used to the ticking and the, the sound and the chimes that you don't even hear it. Like when I come in, I don't hear all these chimes and ticking and, and you know, the gonging. And, but when the shop is closed for vacation and you come back after a week or so, all the clocks have stopped because you need to wind them once a week. And so you come in and it's just sort of an eerie feeling because you hear the silence or I hear the silence. And then I slowly start winding them all up. And then to me, that's my silence with the, all the ticking. Now, what do you think the sound of a clock does for a home, the ticking of a clock versus just having a digital clock in your home? You can tell time either way. Right, well, I think the ticking sort of adds, well, we like to say the heartbeat of the house, where you hear this ticking or the gonging, you hear a grandfather clock, and it's just a steady kind of comfort. Even with the, you know, there's some clocks that chime every 15 minutes, and sometimes people will come in and say, how can you have this clock chime every 15 minutes? so distracting. But when, when it's in your home, you don't even notice it. You only notice it when it stops chiming. Then it's like, hey, something's amiss because this steady thing that's always there is missing and, and something's wrong. What's your favorite kind of clock? I like sort of the old American sort of not too fancy, just real workhorse, like big gears, just like, you know, loud tick so you can hear from across the room and just because it's like... Like I feel it's more of a presence like in there in the room rather than some of these finer clocks which are beautifully made and they're wonderful, but there's just you can't hear them and they're just very ornate. I like just you know wood, metal, brass. Now a lot of the clocks in your shop here I noticed are set. They have the exact time on them. So you'll be turning a lot of clocks back as we fall back. 
with daylight saving time, huh? That's right. Well, we, it's a sort of a slow process, so it goes not just one day. It's, you know, when we're repairing them or selling them, we slowly start turning them back. So within a two-week window, they're all should be set. Did you ever have concern that your future may be uncertain because of the digital world? Or did you sort of know that, you know what, clocks, I think, will stay in fashion despite how rapidly our environment is changing around us? Right. Well, you always wonder about the future, but with clocks, they're so steady and they've been around for so long and they, they, they don't seem to be going anywhere. All right, Sebastian. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Sebastian Laws owns the Sutton Clock Shop on East 82nd Street in Manhattan. Though our nights are getting longer, we have electricity to thank for brightening our evenings. But long before the light bulb, there was the gas lamp. And it was the introduction of gas lighting and later electricity that changed the way New Yorkers see the city after dark. Barnard College professor William Chapman Sharp wrote a book about how artificial lighting influenced the work of writers and artists in early New York City. It's called New York Nocturne, The City After Dark in Literature, Painting, and Photography, 1850 to 1950. William joins me in the studio this morning. Good morning. Welcome. Thanks for having me here. What did you set out to show with this book? Well, there was a lot to show, and mostly it was about looking in the sense that people have explored New York nightlife from a variety of angles, but particularly just the seamy, dirty, low-down side. Um, and I didn't find that anybody had really studied how New York presented itself for sort of in its best clothes, you might say, all dressed up and sparkling and ready to go out to a party. So I wanted to look at that, and on the way through my research, what I gradually discovered, I think, is that representing the nighttime city, showing what was going on out there, and just really trying to figure out how to make the look of it come through in a text or in a painting or in a photo, uh, really changed the way artists and writers and photographers did their work. The real underlying thesis of the book is simply that what we call modernism or modernity really wouldn't be the same without the nighttime city. They saw the city in a whole different way. They did indeed. Now, did they specifically walk the city at night looking for inspiration? Well, a lot of people did. Beginning, well, first off, people didn't do much walking in the city until gaslight came along. Um, it arrived in about 1807 in London, 1814, 1820 in New York, and people hesitantly started going out. And uh, it really wasn't until the 1840s, though, in European capitals as well as New York, that there was a, a nightlife for people to go out to and wander around to. So people might go specifically to one house or another, one 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 place of uh, carousal or another. But the idea of actually strolling around the nighttime city and, and looking at and seeing what it had to offer, that's something that begins in the 1840s and 50s and uh, then just accelerates after that. So what did you notice then as to how the gas lamp started to reshape the arts in New York City at that time? Well, it's interesting. It first felt made, its way, made, it, made itself felt in literature, which is to say visual artists... Uh, couldn't really do much with it because for the painters, it just was a taboo subject to, to paint the gaslit city. Not until around 1890, 1900 with the Ashcan School do painters really go out there and, and, and show what it's like. At the same time, uh, the, the writers, particularly the journalists, um, were really fascinated by what was going on. And so it works its way first into literature. Uh, Herman Melville has kind of a horrific scene in his novel, Pierre, about a, a police station and, and, the, and all of the people who have been rounded up in a police raid. Later on, um, 
you begin to see, um, uh, well, actually earlier, you have uh, Edgar Allan Poe who talks about the look of the city. And um, finally, by the time you get to 1900, um, kind of the um, the conventional um, representation of the city that had been daytime and generally bright, featuring well-to-do people and so on, that was lifted and people began to, to paint it more. In the in the etchings that accompanied some of the um, journalism, though, you, you start to see some of the, the pictures of New York at night, but they were almost universally horrific, particularly those that were connected with the draft riots of 1863 um, and before that the Astor Place riot, where uh, many, many people were killed um, o- over the, the question of whether or not a British performer should, should take the lead in Macbeth or whether an American mm. one should. You write a lot about journalist George Foster and how he viewed the city at night. Yeah. Foster is really the beginning point for the book because in 1850 he wrote this wonderful uh, travelogue called New York by Gaslight. And what he purported to do was to show the city as it really was. And so he takes his readers for a nighttime tour down Broadway. And he says, well, let's look at these ladies here. Hmm, we can tell by their dress what they're selling. Um, And then he goes to a nightclub and he... Um, talks about what's going to go on there much later after he leaves safely um, and about the way in which uh, unsuspecting customers and visitors from the uh, outskirts are going to be bilked of all their money, perhaps be totally stripped and thrown in the river, and so on. So on the one hand, he wants to make New York nightlife uh, kind of enticing and accessible. He wants to show people what's going on. But on the other hand, he really wants to scare them. I would imagine at that time not a lot of people were still going out at night despite the introduction of the gas lamp. Well... Even Walt Whitman, who is probably the the greatest booster our city has ever had, wrote about this time, you shouldn't go unnecessarily wandering around the streets and parks after dark. So the fact of the matter was that New York was very poorly policed, and it was pretty dangerous to be be out and about. So you really did did have to know where you're going or else go with a lot of company. You write that we can better understand the issues involved in the nocturnal discovery of self and city by taking a look at Robert Frost's 1926 poem, Acquainted with the Night. What can that poem tell us? Uh, It's a great poem, and the reason it's so great is because Robert Frost really doesn't give too much away. In that poem, the speaker is wandering through the nighttime streets, and he doesn't really meet anybody, doesn't really talk to anybody. He crosses people who look at him, and he looks at them. But the point is, at the end of each stanza, he says, I have been one who was acquainted with the night. And he's acquainted with it through the solitary meandering through the streets. And finally, he looks up at an unearthly clock. He doesn't really tell you whether the clock is an actual clock or whether he's actually thinking about the moon that is telling him what time. But it proclaims the time is neither wrong nor right. I have been one acquainted with the night. So in Frost's poem, we get to see that the nighttime city is definitely a landscape to be to be traversed and to be and to be explored. But what you're going to find there, and whether or not you're going to find anything that will actually relieve your loneliness at 3 a.m. is a whole other question. You write in the book that it could be said that Nocturne helped photography itself become an art. Yeah, um, what I was trying to say there was that. As photography developed in the 19th century, there were a couple different ways that it could go. At first, an awful lot of people thought, gee, this is really real, and so therefore the whole point of photography is to document. And so there was a lot of photography that that did that kind of work. And in fact, some of the early writing about photography, people talk about it as a servant and a slave, and that it will help artists or it will help anybody who wants to understand something a little better, be useful for military things, it'll be useful to survey a city, and so on, be useful to record architecture that's crumbling. 
On the other hand, there were people who wanted to create in photography something that would emulate fine art, and they often did stagey pictures where they would actually set up people in costumes and so on. But what the Nocturne enabled people to do, this is partly thanks to the influence of Whistler, was it enabled the photographer to go out on a misty night, take a picture of a skyscraper or some wet, uh, some wet reflective pavement, uh, a little fog, a little bit of a tree, a building behind, perhaps a cab waiting there, um, and it looked artistic. It had that kind of aura of of artisticness because there were no hard edges to it. It was soft and shimmering and beautiful, and yet it was it was a true image. Uh, and the um, the artist, in a sense, didn't have to strain to be artistic. And, but it, it wasn't documentary either. It really was a, a thing of beauty. What photographer would you point to most as a great example of nocturne photography? Well, Edward Steichen, I guess, is my favorite, and a lot of people will know his uh, beautiful picture of the Flatiron Building. Uh, one of the things that he does in that photograph is he cuts off the top of it. We see a uh, waiting rank of cabs um, through this kind of a, a, a filigree of, of beautiful tree branches in Madison Square. We look up at the at the Flatiron Building, but because the top has been sliced off by the, by the frame, it seems even taller. It just keeps on going. Um, so he emphasizes height. He also seems to emphasize the way in which nature and culture are working together because of the trees, the rain, the wetness, and the skyscraper. But finally, the skyscraper is just way bigger than the people below it. And it sort of suggests, well, we are heading toward that domination of the individual by the, the, the business interests of, of New York City. When it comes to painters, you say that the most haunting painter of nocturnal New York was Edward Hopper. Well, I'm probably not alone in thinking that. Uh, yeah, everybody's favorite is probably Hopper. Uh, so I, I devoted a fair bit of time to trying to understand Nighthawks uh, and the other night paintings that he did. In the end, Hopper had only did about five or six night paintings, but they're so powerful that we think of him as, as probably the preeminent painter of, of nighttime New York. There's something about the eeriness, the loneliness, and the fact that the story isn't finished, I think, that really uh, draws us to Hopper. We see these people in these situations, and we can supply kind of some kind of narrative to them. Those people in the diner at Nighthawks, what are they doing there? Why are they there? How late is it? What are they going to do next? We'd like to know, but we will never know, and that's part of the, the fascination. How did the introduction of gas and electric lighting here in New York differ compared to other cities like London and Paris? At the beginning, I would say in the 1840s and 50s, it was fairly um, kind of an even race between Paris and London um, uh, in terms of in terms of lighting up the city. New York was a little, actually a little a little slow. In fact, London took the lead. The Parisians complained that things were pretty dull there. By the 1850s, 60s, 70s, though, um, Paris really caught on and became the city of light uh, in, in a very sparkly, pronounced way, such that. Um, uh, the, the English were warning each other not to go there because of what might what might happen. One would be swept away with the lights and, and commit all kinds of sins and indiscretions. Um, so Paris really glittered and sparkled by the 1870s and 80s. New York, though, uh, saw that, that that it was sort of second best and, and began to talk about it itself. And some of the journalism said, we, have, we, are, we are now getting to be um, the equal of any European capital. We've got just as much going on here. And so partly the the, the, the kind of boosterish assessment of the nighttime city became a kind of point of contention. Um, and But it was clear to everybody um, by the time electric light comes in, in in the 1880s that New York has, has won the race and that it is ahead of everything. When um, G.K. Chesterton came to, to New York around 1910, he said, New York is lavish of light as it is lavish of everything else. And that sense that, that everything was, was brighter than, than day 
What do you think Edgar Allan Poe or Walt Whitman would say if they were transported to Times Square at night today? Well, I believe that both of them would have been horrified to a certain degree. Uh, Poe probably more because uh, he really does dwell in and revel in the darkness in lots of lots of different ways. Um, the, there's a wonderful story that he has, The Man of the Crowd. He sets it in London, where he hadn't actually been since he was a child, um, but pretty much he's talking about New York. And in that story, there's a man who who likes to bathe in the crowd, which is to say he spends all his time on the streets where there are people. And as soon as he finds a spot where there aren't any people, he walks as fast as he possibly can to another sector of the city where something is happening. So after the theater lets out, he walks up and down on the theater crowds. And then when that dies down, he goes to an early morning market and, and just walks up and down with those people. And then the people start coming to work, and he walks up and down on the rush hour traffic. And one never finds out who he is or, or what kind of private life he has. The narrator of the story can't keep up with him. He just eventually gives up. But the, the thing is... For both Poe and Whitman to enjoy the crowd, as Whitman did, like Poe, you have to have some respite from it. And I think that I think that the um, uh, the overwhelming glitter and everything doesn't really p- prevent that. But I concluded the book with a a kind of uh, uh, examination of light pollution and a kind of lament for for quietness and darkness. The um, the city doesn't really have many dark places left anymore. We're so scared of darkness that. Um, we've really lost the the ability to be alone with it. And yet I think that that's what the great attraction of the sparkle depends on, is knowing the darkness as well as the light. Where in the city would you go if you were looking for some darkness to get away from the bright lights of the big city? Well, probably the best place is still Central Park. Um, there, of course, you can be surrounded by those lights or look at them from a, from a certain, from a certain distance. Um, Riverside Park isn't bad either. What surprised you most in your research for this book? I guess what surprised me most was the way in which the artists, the writers, the photographers didn't necessarily have to love what was happening in order to do something uh, really wonderful, um, artistically speaking, with it. Which is to say, the dealing with the nighttime city is just like dealing with the rest of modern life. It has wonderful things and it has horrifying things. And the, the people that I included in my book were struggling with the, th- the same thing that we're struggling with all the time, which is how to respond to an environment that is changing in all kinds of radical and strange ways. How can we keep up with what's going on here? What I was most impressed by as I, as I looked at the enormous amount of work that's been done um, by these creative people regarding the representation of New York was simply how much variety was there, how seriously they took their jobs and how much of a of a beautiful legacy they they left for us uh there's something about new york at night that does not induce sleeping but that induces all kinds of puzzlement and wonder and amazement what are you working on now do you have another book project in the works no i'm actually working on shadows 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 and i've been working a little bit on the representation of uh, shadows in New York City. One person that doesn't get mentioned a lot and uh, who, who ought to be known is the guy who taught Edward Hopper how to do etchings. His name is Martin Lewis, and he did wonderful shadow uh, pictures back in the, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Unlike Hopper's, they tell a story, and you can really follow these, these shadowy people um, through the city and see what they were doing. But I'm also interested in street art and the way in which people are, are, are 
are interacting with the shadows on the streets. There's an artist now uh, in Brooklyn, Ellis Gallagher, who traces the shadows that, that are cast by various objects on the streets. He outlines them in chalk, but then you see them in the daytime and say, what is that? And so one of the things he's showing is something that, that is actually a quite profound change that we, I think, have internalized but are not aware of, namely, what happens at night changes the daytime landscape. All those lampposts that we don't even see anymore, they're there for the night. They're not there for the day. Um, although they're good places to put little advertisements and so on. Um, you know, similarly, there are just all kinds of paraphernalia associated with the night, um, the, the, the signs that glow, the walks and things that, that, that one could take in the daytime but that one, hesi- one hesitates not to take at night. There's lots of different um, ways in which the, the nighttime city sort of frames how we behave in the daytime. And when can we expect that? What's your time frame on that book? Uh, well, a year or two. Academic publishing is never <laughs> as speedy as one might like it. All right. And does the, does New York Nocturne have its own website, or do you have a website? It is uh, easily um, found um, at the Princeton University Press website and uh, Amazon.com and so on. William, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. William Chapman Sharp is the author of New York Nocturne, The City After Dark in Literature, Painting, and Photography, 1850-1950. It's published by Princeton University Press. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. William's book talked about what happened once people in the city could prevent darkness. But there are those who prefer to embrace it. You'll find some of them in the basement of the Church of the Messiah in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, where the lights are turned down and the music turned up for a weekly dance party called No Lights, No Lycra. My name is Laura O'Neill and I run No Lights, No Lycra Brooklyn. It's a weekly dance party in the dark um, in Greenpoint. The idea behind No Lights, No Lycra is to create a safe space for people to be able to cut loose and dance in any way that they feel is comfortable for them and just move in a way that feels good without having the any thoughts of how they may look to everybody else or, or what looks good or how they should be dressed or anything like that. It's just a, a, an amazing place to kind of cut loose and, and dance however you feel fit. Hi, my name is Alex Rao. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. You're just kind of dancing and doing your own thing. It's like dancing in your bedroom, but you're in a room filled with other people as well. We run No Lights, No Lycra in um, the basement of a church, um, not because it's a religious event, but I would say it is definitely a spiritual event. Um, And we wanted to find a space that wasn't connected to nightlife. Um, It's not necessarily a sober event, but it does take place without drugs or alcohol, so it's important that it doesn't feel as though it's a night out, which is also the reason we like to do it on a Tuesday, because it's the sort of business end of the week um, and doesn't kind of maybe spiral into like a a big dance party. My name's Stella Perkles. I'm from Melbourne in Australia. It's so nice to be able to do it here in Brooklyn after doing it. I've only been doing it in Melbourne for about... Oh, maybe six or eight months now and love it. It's just so much fun to be able to dance and no one's watching, no one really cares what you're doing and you just get this beautiful endorphin rush from it and it feels fabulous. You don't have to go out and get drunk and it's not a late night. It's, it's really great. 
discourage talking at No Lights No Lycra. We love people to come in here and come with friends but dance on their own because I think that's the best way to get a great experience. Um, and after having done No Lights No Lycra now for over three years, I actually experience uh, when I go out to like night spots and someone will try and talk to me when I'm dancing, I feel really irritated just because I've gotten so used to dancing and like unbothered by people. My name is Debbie Atias and I'm from Miami. I just feel more comfortable getting as crazy as I want to get because it's dark and nobody's looking at you and um, I don't have any problems dancing in the light but it definitely is a little more liberating dancing in the dark. My name is Katya Chen and I am not originally from New York. I just came from California. It's an experience that I think takes you out of your head into your body so you can free yourself and, and move however way you want. It's completely shedding of all of your inhibitions. Um, it's where you are with people but you're also just mostly with just yourself dancing your body and feeling completely comfortable with exactly the right move, the movements that you do without any judgment. So it's a, it's a really free experience. It's really great. The no lycra is, is not really a literal reference, but lycra, I guess, um, is worn by dancers. It's also a fabric that you probably feel like you have to have the right kind of body to wear. So um, by calling it no lights, no lycra, it's, it's about not having to feel like you have to look right or dress right or be a professional dancer in dancewear. It's just everyone is welcome and you can come in here and you can hop on one leg or you can you know, be doing amazing hip-hop moves, but the idea is just to have fun. No Lights, No Lycra takes place every Tuesday night at the Church of the Messiah in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. You don't have to get out on the dance floor to enjoy darkness. In fact, you don't even have to leave the dinner table. The creators of Dark Dining Projects believe that eating meals in darkness enhances the overall dining experience. Amy Baumgarten joins us now on the phone. She's the director of Dark Dining Projects. Amy, thanks for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. So first of all, what is Dark Dining all about? So Dark Dining Projects serves sensory feasts to blindfolded guests. And what that means is it's a full sensory experience where we take away your sight, but we offer a deepening into all of your other senses through the course of the evening. So how does taking away your sight affect the eating experience? I guess I can give you some things that my guests have been saying of late, which is that they feel an intensity around the, the, the taste and the smells and like what it is, how those senses merge and how they relate to each other. So by taking away your sight, you can't expect to know what you're about to eat, but your body is ready and available to really take in the taste and the smells and all the other aspects of it. What kind of thinking goes into creating a menu for a dark dining experience? It involves a lot of kind of playing with textures and unique tastes, unique relationships between tastes. When did this idea for dark dining projects originate? Uh, Dana Salisbury is the creator of the entire uh, event, and she started in 2005 
she um, is an artist, a visual artist and a choreographer. And so she had this interest in what it is to do things without sight. And um, she also has a background in body-mind centering, which is a type of work that, as it sounds, connects body and mind um, through deep awareness of the senses. So she kind of took those ideas and her training and created this event. Where do these events take place? They can take place anywhere, but mainly we are uh, at home at Kamaj Bistro in the West Village. And how frequently do you do them? We do events two to three times a month. We have public events. And then uh, we also offer private parties opportunities to do their own events. So we have them going on anywhere from five to eight times a month. I actually love the saying that you folks have, cover your eyes, come to your senses, and experience an evening of familiar unknowns. It's a great saying. And that's exactly what we do there. And what is your website? Our website is www.darkdiningprojects.com. Amy, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. That was Amy Baumgarten, director of Dark Dining Projects here in New York City. You can find them online at darkdiningprojects.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Past editions of Cityscape are available online at wfuv.org slash cityscape. The light is always on there for you. And show us some love on Facebook and Twitter. We're listed on both as WFUV Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to senior producer Marlene Chin, producer Veronica Volk, and producer Alana Holbrook. Have a great weekend. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York, listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.